Welcome to the Breaking Bread Podcast, conversations about how food inspires the people that inspire us. Join me, Michelle Jobin, and my co-host, Jasmine Baker, for our chats with some of the most influential and sometimes infamous chefs, producers, and hospitality icons. Together, we'll uncover the compelling stories of the people behind what we eat, drink, and enjoy. Here we go. Hi, everyone. It's Michelle. Today on Breaking Bread, Jasmine and I welcome hospitality entrepreneur and friend, Franco Stelteri. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation because we certainly did. It was a lot of fun. Franco has a deep love for the restaurant industry and is one of those people who is just innately hospitable. And I might also say knowledgeable about the industry itself. He worked his way through various Toronto hotspots and spent time working at his aunt's restaurant in France when he was younger. And because of all of that, one might have forecasted that he was on his way to owning his own restaurant. But instead, he started what would become one of the most well-known underground dining experiences, the Charlie's Burgers Supper Club. Charlie's Burgers was at once the most talked about and sought after dinner tickets you could get, a globally renowned chef dinner series that was ranked by Food & Wine magazine as number three on its list of 100 best new food and drink experiences in the world. Many of us believe it played a big part in putting Toronto on the global dining map and helped kick off a culinary renaissance of sorts here. What has always been interesting to us is how Franco's love and appreciation for the Epicurean dictates the course, and he has spared no cost and has never set a ceiling to what chefs could do when they came to do a dinner with him. And Franco has really done a lot of firsts, from bringing the world's top chefs like Fergus Henderson and Dario Cecchini to Toronto for the very first time, and then later creating a monthly wine club where you can get the world's best wines, typically unavailable in this market, I might add, delivered to your door monthly. Pretty genius. He does all this without any desire for his own spotlight, And that's because he respects the art of dining a little too much for that. Our love of Franco runs deep, and we are so excited for you to get to know him better. Okay, so I'm recording now. Um, Have we all turned off our our devices and our emails? I think so. I'm going to... That's why I'm caffeinating right now. Yes, speakers. You're good? Mm. Yep. There you go. Hi, Franco speaking. We're confirmed for tonight. I'm just on a Zoom call. Just gonna. Okay. I'm so glad I'm recording this. What? Oh man. I, I wanted to get in in the a day in the life of. That's what this is. Have we started? We have. But we, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we like to start at the beginning. We want to help tell your story. We want for those who may not know you, which would be very surprising. But for those who may not know you, we want them to know um everything there is about you so that they can love you as much as we do oh Um, that's very sweet thanks very much for having me both michelle and jazz i'm thrilled to be here uh happy to jump right in where do you want me to start the very beginning well if i remember correctly we both started our careers uh at young and eglinton uh which was the the mid midtown nightlife hub of toronto (laughs) of the 90s 
I'm really aging myself when I say stuff like that. But, this made uh, me like, very excited when Jasmine wrote this in a question. So I want to so know more. <laughs> me at Shark City, you at Spaco, and you also frequenting my bar quite a bit when you weren't working. Is Absolutely. That, right? that, that is the, correct. Was that the beginning? That is the beginning. Now I had worked, um, funny enough, I actually started my culin or my, my restaurant career as a dishwasher at Swiss Chalet way before that in like 1993 okay. and four. But this is a very respectable place in Canada to start. <laughs> your, no, I mean, too. Th this is, this is like a rite of passage. So good. Absolutely. That's good. Go on. Uh, yeah. So it, I started at Swiss Chalet as a dishwasher. I think it was like grade nine and uh, nice. it was terrible. It sucked. Um, but it was, uh, I mean, it put money in my pocket and it, it, uh, it showed me kind of from the bottom up what the restaurant business was in that sense. I also spent many summers, my, some of my relatives had, uh, restaurants and bars, both in France and Italy. So I spent a lot of summers also in the earlier nineties, uh, working my summers there. So that was interesting. And obviously Europeans do things very, very differently. Um, but for all intents and purposes, as jazz said in the, in the late nineties is when I really kind of started, uh, kind of that, that, that life. Um, and it was, uh, it was a restaurant called Spaco at, uh, at Young at Eglinton. And we definitely went to see Jasmine quite often after work. Um, we were also a really big destination for the Young and Eglinton post work staff uh, from like Central, from North 44, from Grazie. Yeah. Uh, and so those were always kind of the heavy hitters when we were like, oh no, the, the North 44 people are coming in yeah. tonight after work, or oh no, the Chetro <laughs> people are coming in after work. Um, and it always got very uh, interesting. But uh, funny thing is, is when we went to visit Jasmine, just so you guys know, I was terrified of Jasmine. Jasmine really? was like, oh yeah, I would be like, I'd be like, hi, can I get a drink? Because Jasmine was Jasmine and she was bartending and kind of well, had the whole place going. And we we're, I was very young at the time. And we were like, hi, can I get a whatever the hell we were ordering? Can we get some broken down golf carts, please? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and you made those with all the alcohol in them, right? The broken down golf cart, Jasmine? Yep, because I know that those wrap. I, I mean, I get that a little bit, Franco, because the first time I met Jasmine just over 10 years ago, I was like, who is this woman she's absolutely incredible like i'm like how are you this stunning and this put together and this smart and this everything mm -hmm, let's just mm -hmm. do a jasmine appreciation yeah. hour <laughs> yeah guys uh, i mean let's, thank you i feel obviously i'll pay you afterwards <laughs> so, so, so much so jazz was like queen queen of the bartenders uh, uh i gave away a lot of i gave away a lot of drinks in those days <laughs> As one, hey, as you do. We as thought it was very amazing when Jasmine even, you know, registered our presence and kind of, oh. you know, made eye contact. We're like, wow. I got you. you. I got you. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. Uh, but that was it. Yeah. So it was Young and Eglinton, and then uh, a little bit of time on College Street in the in the early 2000s when college really started ramping up, um, which was always very interesting. And uh, and that's kind of. After university is when I, I actually stopped working in operations, uh, and um, and uh, I started uh, I started headhunting, um, yeah, and and headhunted for kind of specialized in luxury lodging and uh, fine dining for I don't know like five years or so, which is where kind of the whole Charlie's Burgers thing then started. Um, back in 2000, right on the onset of the first of the financial right. crisis of yeah. 2007 and eight or eight and nine, mm -hmm. also the fallout. Um, I remember the kind of the principles at, uh, at the headhunting firm where I was working would uh, a lot of my, I guess the annual review would be, you know, you're doing great, everything's good, but you really need to diversify your client 
portfolio. You can't focus only on luxury lodging and fine dining. And again, I was a little bit younger at the time and I'd never been through any kind of financial cycles. Um, and I was like, nah, are you kidding? Everything is amazing in Miami. Everything's great in Las Vegas. Those places will never be not busy and there's just development yeah. for days. Yes. And then the financial <laughs> crisis came and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um, yes, yeah. and it was That's very, what very, you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. And it was a very, very dark time in our, in our industry. Yeah. And I actually see a lot of parallels between what happened then and what has happening now. Um, and a lot of similarities, obviously there's a lot of glaring differences right now that, that are much harder to solve. But, um, in terms of how decimated the restaurant industry was, it was very similar. It was in a very similar spot back then as well. Um, and so that's where the idea for Charlie's Burgers started. Essentially, I always wanted to do something, uh, fun or take on a project of sorts. And I had a lot more time because my clients, uh, you know, for, for lack of a better word, almost closed down all the restaurants and had no, you know, no real, uh, income at the time. So anyways, that's where the Charlie's Burgers uh, idea really started uh, back in 2007 and 8. Um, and we were doing a lot of dinners with friends as well back then where uh, we would have chef friends cook dinner for a group of us on like a Sunday and we'd all, you know, pitch in whatever the whatever the food cost was. We'd all kind of um, participate. And then slowly um, a lot of our or people started adding themselves or asking to add their friends to the the reply all email basically that's how technologically advanced we were at the time <laughs> it was just this mass big email of a reply all saying you know that we're doing this dinner here and there and this is the date this is the time it'll probably be about you know whatever x amount of dollars per person let us know if you guys want to come um and eventually we kind of we started uh more formally in 2009 with actual mm -hmm. Charlie Burgers dinners. Um, and that's where uh, our web developer at the time or someone that, that knew a web developer or whatever told us, hey, if I open or if I have, if you guys have a website, you can have a whole database on the back end where you can store all of your email addresses so you don't have to look like complete idiots when you hit reply all all the time. <laughs> And we're like, oh, that's a great idea. And uh, amazing. That, yeah. And that, that <laughs> website lasted for a long time. It probably lasted for like seven, eight years yeah. until we yeah. started the wine program and all that, which we'll get into later. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of the origins of Charlie's Burgers. But I haven't really said what Charlie's Burgers essentially is yet. I was going to get know. to that. So yeah, yeah. let's do it. Mm -hmm. So essentially, I mean, if for, for anyone that, that doesn't know, and, and I'm sure there's quite a bit of people that don't know us out there, and, and we would love them to know us, but uh, Charlie's Burgers is essentially a dinner series and has been a dinner series for upwards of 11 years now in Toronto, where we bring in uh, some of the top chefs from some terrific restaurants from around the world. Uh, originally, when we started, uh, they were obviously Canadian and local chefs. And as we expanded and as, uh, you know, traction built up and, and we built up a following and a lot of international press and that kind of thing, we um, were able to attract uh, international chefs and very well-known chefs that, uh, that, uh, that came to Toronto. And the premise has always been the same. It was really just um, letting chefs do and execute any menu they wanted uh, with really no limits. Um, and we would pair it up with great wines and find some really fun service professionals and psalms from across the city to work it with us. And we just have a great night. So that was, it's a very simple concept at its core over the years has grown in complexity and, and, um, and logistics and all of that. Uh, but, uh, essentially that's, that's what 
Charlie's Burgers is, is, is a, just a very straightforward dinner series. Well, first of all, I find it interesting that it was sort of born out of this thing that you just did with people you knew, like it was just like an organized dinner with friends and it grew into that idea. I had moved away. I was living in Calgary, living and working in Calgary for a while. And then I moved back in mid 2008. And I mm -hmm. remember by the time we got to like early 2009, I remember hearing a lot about this. Uh, there was definitely a lot of buzz. Mm -hmm. I was definitely one of those people that sent you an email. and was like, put me on the list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, so the, cause there was, it was so interesting because there was just this idea of it being, I think, it got around that there's something that, that there was like something subversive about it like mm. that it was uh because it's this like secret invite only dinner series which makes it sound like way more subversive than i think it, it actually is it's just you just like have control of the entire experience and then you move on and you do something totally different you know what i mean you shape these experiences individually mm. but yeah, I mean, I just remember how much of a big thing that and how in fascinated I was by it at the time. But do you have any in particular that were really memorable for you? That's oh, yeah, out? tons of them. And, and I'll, I'll <laughs> actually I'll start with um, the whole Charlie's Burgers really also for us was hilarious to watch almost as bystanders as well. Yeah. Uh, because it really took off a light, took on a life of its own in in both the media and kind of general pop culture, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. which was extremely hilarious for us to watch from from the sidelines because none of that was by design, and there were so many different theories and thoughts yeah. and ideas and you were like and, Banksy, yeah, and we're like, <laughs> it was really a monster that got away from us. I mean, it was none of that was by design, and we really just right put it together to, to have great dinners with great chefs. And I per personally didn't think we would be doing this for more than, you know, three, four months. I'd get tired of it. People would get tired of it. We'd move on, whatever it was. Um, and had I known, we would have probably put a lot more thought into a better name um, and, and that kind of thing. But it was, it was really kind of a monster or an animal that got away from us or kind of took on a life of its own because the, the buzz around it and the, um, the, the, the crazy philosophies or, or beliefs around it were, were at some point people were writing, they thought it was like, um, a Gordon Ramsay and, and we're like, what? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's just, it's just us. It's a bunch of fools from Toronto. We're not, you know, um, it was and so funny. The, I remember getting introduced to you and someone's like, sees Charlie Burke. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> You're like, oh, he's the oh. jerk that hasn't let me. But um, yeah, and also same with the mystery. For the first many years, um, we were we were a lot younger than I like. We were in our we were in our late twenties, which I would assume is is kind of younger. But you know, we we were not these. We didn't have these crazy culinary careers built, mm -hmm. or we weren't coming from these crazy top restaurants. We were just a bunch of. Uh, people that worked in the industry that really enjoyed what we did and wanted to kind of put on these dinners. And so for the first little while, no one knew who Charlie was. And again, that wasn't really by design. It was always, we always focused on just concentrating on the chef and his or her mm -hmm. menu and, and kind of the pairings and having a good night about it or having a good night with the whole, with the whole team. Um, and we never really focused on the people behind it or who Charlie was and all of those details. And as the media started reaching out more and more frequently. I remember the first email that I wrote, read from some food writer that said, hey, we'd like to interview Charlie. And I was like, oh, they think there's a person. And we're like, oh, here we go. 
And then that's kind of when we rolled with it. And then you had, and you had t-shirts. Didn't you have t-shirts at, at the, your dinners at that time? Like who's Charlie or not Charlie? Or not, or a lot of people would, it was really funny because a lot of guests during the dinners would ask us saying, hey, do you know, do you know who Charlie is? And, like, <laughs> and they're like, are, uh, are, are you Charlie? And I'm like, no, no. They're like, great. Can I get another glass of wine? I'm like, no problem. Okay. Um, or they, we'd have a, we have a sommelier that has this hilarious, you know, Salvador Dali mustache. And, um, and they'd always kind of be like, that guy looks like <laughs> You must be Charlie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We also had a, a really terrific psalm, um, a gentleman by the name of Andreas Reeder that worked with us many, many times. Uh, he was the sommelier at the York Club and, mm. and uh, was a psalm in, in a lot of terrific places, had an amazing palate. It was an amazing person. And he was a little bit older than we were. He was probably, he probably had like 20, 15, 20 years on us, if, 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 if at least. And uh, whenever he worked at dinner with us, because he was coming from the York Club, that was the kind of the polish that he had. And so he always wore a suit and a tie when he worked service with us, where some of the other team members were wearing like a T-shirt and a toque. And then you had this gentleman in a suit and a tie. And then that's when people were like, oh, that older guy with the suit, that's him. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, it was always fun to watch because there was fun. a certain kind of intrigue that people loved theorizing as to what oh. was happening behind the scenes. I mean, it's a fascinating sociological experiment that is accidental in some ways, like you said, like you didn't mean to create this, but it's like, it's not, I mean, it's not the same thing, but you remember that thing about the guy that basically created buzz around a restaurant in, in the UK that was his shed? And he was like, Michael, I didn't know, do you remember I don't remember, hearing? No, 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 it became the, one of the number one rated uh, restaurants in the UK on on Yelp or on TripAdvisor or whatever, because he just planted the seed of an idea of it, it was this random and it was in his Amazing. shed in his back Amazing. garden and they were microwaving food. That's that's, oh, that's that gonna be the next one. Yeah, that's I mean you got a shed? Franco, do you have a shed? <laughs> I, I do have a shed. I do have a well, shed behind the fence garden. Yeah, that yeah yeah. And so <laughs> but that, that's, that's also where a lot of a lot of, you know, quote unquote critics that we had at the time were like, this is just a marketing ploy. They're going to, they're up to something. And we're like, we're not up to anything, man. Yeah. <laughs> we're I, really I not up to even, anything. I love it even more now, Franco, yeah. that I know the full story about it. Like, again, that it was just, that it just kind of grew very much out of this thing that you started with the front. So I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite though? Do you have any memorable, do you have, can you pick? There were some pretty crazy ones. Like, that's like a Sophie's Choice question. I know. Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah. Tell, us, tell, yeah. tell us some of some of your favorites. Some of our favorites. What I really like, okay, so we've had the very good fortune to work with chefs from, as I said, some of the top restaurants from around the world, from Michelin-starred restaurants to Relais Chateau properties to world's 50 best restaurants. Um, and and it's, it's what I really like, I'll get to the chefs in a second. What I really enjoy about hosting teams of chefs and teams from restaurants from around the world is, is showing off what is happening in Toronto mm. and what our restaurant scene is like here and mm -hmm. what our bar scene is like here and what, you know, what, what we're up to in terms of the culture of our, of our restaurants in Toronto yeah. and bringing them out. Funny thing is, is most, almost all of the chefs that we've ever brought in from around the world have never been to Toronto. Most have never been to Canada and really don't have 
a real idea of what Toronto is about and what Toronto is. So for us, it was always a terrific opportunity to really show them what it is that we're doing here. And they are always so impressed. I mean, it's easy, I guess, to impress when they come in with no real opinion or ideas on what Toronto is. But as I said, it, it's, you know, they're always really impressed as to what we're doing here. So in terms of the dinners, that's one side of it, but really showing them Toronto and how much we've accomplished and how diverse and exciting a city we have um, is always something or that, that we take a lot of pride in. In terms of chefs, I mean, over the years, obviously we were, there's a lot of very foggy memories at some points um, over the years that, you know, it was very, very, very rah, rah, rah for many years. We were much younger um, and, and it was also, you know, really ingrained in that culture when chefs came in. You also have to look at it where most of the chefs that we brought in was was kind of a working vacation for them, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, we, we do these dinners with chefs because they agree to do, uh, do it on our terms of, of kind of really kind of swinging for the fences. And they also realize that it's not a it's not really a profit thing. They're not making money from doing this. So they're really doing it because they love what they do and, and they have an opportunity to do something exciting and different. Um, but it is, it is a working vacation as well, which is how we are able to kind of attract some amazing chefs. And um, there's been a lot of fun stories where, you know, we'll get phone calls from, from, from our bar owner friends or, or, or restaurant owner friends. They're like, Oh, the, the, the people from so-and-so restaurant were here with you guys yesterday and they stayed long, whatever it is. They, uh, uh, they left their wallet and like a jacket and this and that. They're like, don't worry. We know where they they're staying. We'll bring everything back for them. And I'm like, Oh my God. Or, you know, the times where, uh, Brits are the worst, by the way, Brits are <laughs> British chefs are absolutely crazy. Um, and we've always had a lot of fun with them, but when they leave, we're exhausted. And usually gotcha. we, we send them home in, in, in pretty rough shape as well, which mm -hmm. is, uh, which is always fun. Um, <laughs> but you know, Brits all, will go till three, four, five in the morning and then start prep at 7am and have no issues with it. Wow. Um, and so, uh, uh, but let's get to the dinners. Let's see dinners. Um, we, I've been able to work with terrific chefs. Like the, we brought in the chefs from the Chateaubriand um, in Paris many years ago. This was back in 2011 at the time. It was actually rated number three. It was the top, it was the third best rated restaurant on the world's 50 best list in the world. It was the top rated oh. restaurant in France. And we're like, how are these people coming to see us? It was always kind of wow. surreal in that sense. Um, and they were really, really forward thinking at the time in 2011. Um, and they still are obviously, but um, back, in, back in 2011, it was really kind of extremely cutting edge what they were doing and kind of the, the world that they had created for themselves in Paris and how they had almost single-handedly how this restaurant had uh, revolutionized kind of bistrona, that, that culture of gastronomy and, and that new culture of restaurants in Paris was really fascinating. Um, you know, we've had really big chefs like uh, Dario Cecchini and, and Fergus Henderson that are globally renowned. And, you know, you walk into a to a restaurant with, with these chefs and kind of the whole restaurant's like, well, these guys are here. Um, and funny enough, like even someone like Dario Cecchini, who is a larger than life personality, his, his suitcase hadn't arrived. Um, and so he was wearing his hilarious costume, which is like basically a, a, an Italian flag. It's like green pants, a red shirt, a green vest, red Crocs. And so he was wearing that outfit for like three days. And it didn't matter where we were going. We'd go into like you know, a super nice restaurant and you have Dario Cecchini looking hilarious. Um, and so that, those were, I mean, those, those dinners were really quite memorable uh, simply because 
in addition to having the chef and his menu, I think what Charlie's Burgers really accomplishes well is, is having that proximity to a chef that most of the time, as, as kind of they get more and more successful and busy, they're not in the restaurants as much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that proximity and that connection uh, to the chefs at our dinners where y- you have some sort of access uh, to them and you're able to, to, I guess, get a bit of face time and understand what their philosophies on food are in a much clearer way because they're present, because they're executing, because they're there. Um, they're not absentee from, from they're not absent from, from kind of the day-to-day operations like some might be. Um, uh, what else have we done? I mean, there was also really, really terrific ones from, as I said, some of the cult restaurants like Punk Royale from from Copenhagen that we brought last year were really, really a lot of fun. They're out of control. It, their mm-hmm. restaurant is a very wacky, surreal, hilarious experience if you haven't. And so we recreated it almost to a T in Toronto and we had a lot of fun with them. Um, and there's certain groups of chefs that you just click with as well. Um, and, and you just really identify that, you know, so you're very similar and you just click with and you have a terrific time. Um, then there's other chefs that are, you know, really, really great chefs. And, you know, like you cannot have, there was one chef that um, we, there's absolutely, you know, some chefs demand that the kitchen be absolutely quiet, no service in the kitchen until pickup, uh, no music. You could hear a pin drop. Uh, a couple of times a chef is, you know, Michelin star chefs might be like, hey, can your staff not be in the kitchen? We're like, right, sorry. Whereas other chefs will, you know, will load up their prep areas with beers in every drawer. And they're like, yeah, and they're playing crazy music all the time. So yeah. you get, we get, you're, we were exposed and we were able to, to kind of, um, see a lot of different styles of, of executing, you know, essentially what is the same thing. Um, and so you're able to see uh, the different ways of getting to the same result. Uh, other dinners that, that have been really spectacular, um, the chef for the Governor General of Canada had a specific menu in mind for the better part of a decade, which was an all Arctic menu. Um, so we're talking about all of the items that are extremely Canadian that as Canadians, none of us had ever seen. I had never handled, I'd never seen or had ex- been, and had any exposure to, but everything from like seal to walrus to muskox to um, narwhal um and everything was hunted and gathered by by um inuits and and kind of shipped to us um and they had specific traps that they had created to to um to to catch specific seafood items um way up in in kind of the northern parts of of our country and uh, the menu had changed a couple times over over the course of uh kind of the planning because um you know some areas had frozen over and the traps weren't accessible and they're like we'll be able to get the traps back in the spring so let's just change the menu um i mean there were people that were gathering uh arctic kelp for us he did an arctic kelp sorbet which was really terrific so these are just as Canadians we had never been exposed to any of these ingredients even though they're technically in our backyard and so that was a really really phenomenal thing he was there are a lot of layers to that story as well he was one of the courses he was perfecting at the CB dinner because he was serving it to the princess of Japan a few weeks later uh so those are always kind of fun things to tell your guests where you're kind of you know you're telling your guests that you're they're basically the in the final phases of, of being guinea pigs for something that's going to be served to the princess of Japan so it's always kind of fun um what other ones have been fun oh my god yeah punk royale was fun uh dario chiquita yeah. was obviously a lot of fun there's been so many it's been so long that's good. anyway those are some yeah. of the, more will come to mind in a bit <laughs> that's i'm sure okay so i want to ask you um 
you know, you are, you're somewhat of a culinary adventurer, not just in terms of what you produce here on, on, in home court, but you're the kind of person who will hop a plane to go and have an epic meal. So can you share with us some of your, your culinary adventures? Mm -hmm. So actually how the whole, um, Punk Royale dinner came about in Toronto was actually uh, a result of exactly what, what you're describing. A bunch of us hopped on a, on a flight to go to Copenhagen. Um, it was myself, excuse me, it was myself, uh, Rob Gentile, uh, who's the chef at Buka, Maddie Matheson, who we all know very well, uh, Suresh Das, who has a terrific show on CBC, and a very good friend of ours called Moise Kassam. Who, um, who in many trips that I've been on, he's been the instigator of, you know, let's do it, let's do it, let's go to this place, let's go to this place. Yeah. I'm like, okay, let's let's go to this place. So we all hopped on a flight and uh, spent 48 hours in, in Copenhagen. And it was extremely compact. We didn't have much time. Like as soon as we got off the flight, Maddie is like, we gotta have these, we gotta have these hot dogs in the airport right away. And it's like 6.45 AM and we're getting <laughs> off a, a, a transatlantic flight. And I was like, we gotta eat these hot dogs right now. And we're like, okay. Perfect. Uh, and that's kind of how it started. Um, I mean, the, the, so we had, we then went to Punk Royale one of the evenings. So I think the first evening, I can't remember. And we had a reservation at Punk Royale at six and we had a, a reservation for dinner at Noma at 8.30. So we're kind of, we were doing a lot of double dinners and double lunches or triple lunches and that kind of thing. So you're trying to see and, and, and taste as much as you can in this very small period yeah. of time. Um, and that's, uh, uh, Punk Royale is a really interesting, um, is a really interesting, uh, I guess, case study in how we are able to just get chefs to come to Toronto. So we get to Punk Royale, I walk in, uh, where we all walk in and I sit down and we haven't had, they're serving water at this point. They're basically pouring our first glass of water and they had dyed the water blue. The whole place is, is smoky. You can barely see in front of you. And we, as I said, we hadn't had anything to eat yet. We haven't even had the menus. And I just looked at the waiter or the server pouring the water and I was like that's it and I got up and I walked to the kitchen and they knew who we were because we had made the reservation they obviously knew who Maddie was and I looked at the main chef and I'm like I know you don't know me um, and he's like well we know you guys or whatever it is you know we are coming and I'm like listen we're really excited to be here but I haven't had any food would you come to Toronto and do a dinner with us and he's like what I'm like the whole team you guys come to Toronto we'll do a dinner He's like, oh, and then he kind of thought about it for a few seconds and he's like, okay, let's do it. And I'm like, done. <laughs> so that obviously we talked about the details as the, you know, over the, the, the coming weeks and months or whatever. But right then and there, I was like, no, no, I'm serious. I'll email you tomorrow. We'll sort it out. But will you come? And then he was like, yeah, we'll come. Uh, so that was kind of, that was a lot of fun. Um, another and you, really, did, you did two, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Because there were so many people interested. You had to do two dinners. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. A lot of the time when we do um, uh, chefs from from abroad, essentially, we'll do two dinners uh, mm -hmm. simply because it amortizes the costs of the mm -hmm. dinner into a much more uh, palatable ticket price, essentially. Um, there's obviously, as the years have gone on, the complexity and the budgets of our dinners have, you know, increased, you know, exponentially from the very first ones where uh, a lot of the time as I, you know, if you tell a chef, there's no limits to what you can put together, then, you know, it's always a terrific menu, but as you can imagine, costs really escalate. Um, another really amazing uh, culinary trip we took, which was really just for one night was, um, again, a, a good friend of ours, Moaz Kassam had, had gotten this reservation at New York, at a New York 
uh, institution called Reos, um, which is essentially the hardest reservation I'm assuming in North America to get um, your your reservation is essentially grandfathered in. You can pass your reservation down in your will, um, and so it, it's a, it's an impossible reservation to get. Um, so we flew down to uh, to uh, Rayos, and it's 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 not the greatest food, um, and I'm probably gonna get a lot of grief for this. But it's <laughs> if someone said, "Do you want to go back?" tonight to Rayos, I would hop on a, well, maybe not now, but I would, <laughs> but I would yeah. hop on a flight to go back to Rayos anytime because it's so much fun and it's such an experience. And, uh, it really is, um, like eating in a time capsule in a way of, of kind of what New York was. Um, but as I said, it's, it's, people are like, how was the food? Is this the greatest thing you ate? I'm like, no, not even close, but I would go back tomorrow if I could, cause it's that's mu that much fun. And now, a word from our partners. Over the last 11 years, Charlie's Burgers has become a preeminent purveyor of fine wines and spirits, curating wine packages directly from vineyard to table. The CB Wine Program, Canada's premier monthly wine club, is a wine delivery service where members are sent different wines every month. The CB Sommelier team tastes upwards of 800 wines from around the world annually to curate monthly mixed cases for their CB Wine program, as well as a full online wine store featuring some of the world's top wine producers. To add even more value, each month features a collaboration with a top local restaurant and cheese pairings from the famous Cheese Boutique here in Toronto. To find out more, visit cbwineprogram.com. That, cool. that is very cool. I mean, that's, those, that's a lot of adventure there just in that. Oh, you yeah. got your coffee. That's good. Your yeah, I got my arrived. coffee. That's good. That's good. Um, mm -hmm. I, and, I, and I love those stories. Um, and your focus, would you say at this point that your focus has shifted because it, back, it was at 2015, you started your wine club? In 2013. In we started this. Yeah, in 2013. So over seven years ago, we started the, the CB wine program, which mm -hmm. is uh, essentially a wine delivery service. Uh, every month um, we work with a different wine producer from around the world and that producer creates a custom case of wine for our members and we ship it directly to our members. We deal exclusively and only with the winemakers and the wineries directly. We do everything in-house, we import everything, uh, we provide uh, great write-ups on the wines, the histories of the region, the importance of the region, the history of the winery, who they are. Generally, it's a family-owned winery. We focus on obviously smaller wineries um, and uh, all of the tasting notes you need um, to know about the wines. Uh, I guess in non-COVID times as well, the wine program has a restaurant angle as well where we collaborate or we feature two different restaurants uh, in Toronto every month where our members are able to make reservations, bring the wines that we send them and not pay corkage. Um, and so they always have a really great uh, dining destination to bring their wines. Uh, we work very, very closely with Cheese Boutique as well. Uh, and Afrim puts together a basket of goods uh, every single month that pairs with the wines that are um, accessible to our members at wholesale pricing. So there's the culinary element for home if you mm. choose not to go out. There's a lot of other culinary elements and, and kind of angles and, and sure. one-offs that we do to pair with the wines. But the, the wine program essentially um, was an extension of what we did at, at 
at the Charlie's Burgers dinners. We always imported many of the wines that we served at the dinners. We always uh, paired all of the courses with different and terrific wines. And over the years that we're doing the dinners, a lot of our guests would ask us, hey, can I buy this wine? Hey, can I buy this wine? And we never really wanted to engage in a kind of a sales driven activity at our dinners. So we always kind of put it off till the next day and we're like, yeah, 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 no problem. We'll, we'll contact you tomorrow. We can talk about it, but for now, just enjoy the dinner. Um, and in 2013, uh, we had the idea to start basically the, the CB wine program where we thought, Hey, what if we, you know, sent our members uh, different wines every month and, uh, you know, kept them excited and, and kept doing really interesting things. It's, it's a very creative process. Uh, we, we taste upwards of 800 wines a year to select uh, 12 producers to work with every year. Um, we've now featured, we're in our 87th month of programming essentially. Wow. So, um, I think we featured, we're doing the math the other day. So in 87 months, I think we featured, uh, almost 80 different wine producers. We've repeated a couple of wine producers, mm -hmm. you know, are really our favorites and, and ones mm -hmm. that, that, that have done really, really well. But for all intents and purposes, we try to, sh you know, showcase a different producer every month. So we've, we've, if you've been on the wine program for, for, its entirety for the last seven years, you've seen over 80 wine producers come through your home. Um, and that's kind of what we also wanted to do is kind of create an extension of what we did at CB dinners for, for the enjoyment uh, in, in home basically. And um, right now is kind of, you know, again, by no design and purely by accident, we happen to be at the right place at the right time. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it's not something I would <laughs> wish for, but um, again, it's, it's really something that, uh, you know, we're very fortunate and, and, and we definitely count ourselves very lucky that we are where we are, that we are at the right place at the right time. Uh, we're, you know, we're among the first, uh, people that were, that did this seven years ago and, and kind of, you know, kept evolving what the wine program is and kept pushing and keep pushing the, the kind of the, the um, keep pushing ourselves to find better wines. It's also um, become, you know, we have a couple of tiers. We also have the CB reserve program, which is a, um, a much uh, more elevated version of the wine program with library wines and, and hard to find vintages. And we ask our wine producers to kind of go into their private cellars and pull out specific bottles for us that they wouldn't, you know, allow other people to have access to um, and that kind of thing. So we're also able to work with other fun producers where we can work on like really large format bottles, which some people love and some people are like, what am I going to do with four liters of this wine? <laughs> I love uh, it. I know. It's great. I, th I just wanted to provide some context as well for people that uh, may not be from Ontario, which is the province that we're in is of course as well, what the point of difference specifically for you because are because alcohol sales in the province of Ontario are controlled are regulated by the government. What I what one of the big points of difference for you is that you're providing options that they might not that people might not be able to get because when it comes to wine, for the most part, that is decided by the LCBO what is carried. So you're giving people access to things that they might not normally have access to, right? Absolutely. I'm being the, the horrible salesman that I am. I completely forgot to say that. No, that's all okay. of the that's okay. all of the wines that we feature on the wine program on the CB wine program are exclusive to our members. They're not available anywhere. We import them exclusively and only for our members. Uh, so they're really the only people getting access to these wines within Ontario. That's great. Incredible. I love it. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, that's it. We've, we've also have, we have a couple of our own labels that, that are a lot of fun. We have our own, uh, we have our own champagne and our own Chianti. Which is delicious. I'm <laughs> delicious. Yeah. Delicious. Uh, 
So we wanted to ask you, you know, as somebody who has deep relationships in the hospitality business, uh, you and your wife, uh, both, uh, very close to the business. Um, you know, it's the art, the industry has been rocked by COVID and wanted to ask what your advice or hopes or thoughts are on the future of, mm. of the industry. That's a really, really good question. And uh, I mean, yeah, I've been, I've been in this industry for, you know, I guess all my life in that sense and all of my working life. Mm -hmm. um, I've never really had any career, any jobs or any, or worked outside of this industry. So uh, it is obviously something that's very near and dear to my heart. And a lot of, you know, most of my friends are in this industry and a lot of our closest contacts, as you said, are in this industry, whether it's, you know, here or London or Rome or, or in Paris, wherever they might be, but everyone's kind of in that same boat. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with chefs, uh, both from Toronto, from London, from Rome, from Paris uh, over the past couple of months. And they kind of all ask the same thing. And I don't know, it's a really tough situation. Um, I, and I don't have any real, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah. I, I think fundamentally the hospitality industry will have to shift and change over the coming years into, into something different, but at its core, the hospitality industry has always been, um, uh, in change and always has changed. I mean, you know, the, the, the origins of restaurants in France where a lot of private chefs for nobility and royalty were all of a sudden out of work after the revolution is kind of that starting point. And same, they were hospitality professionals before. They just happened to work in people's homes. So now they were, you know, out of their homes because most of their employers were dead. Um, and so, um, you know, they, they realized, oh, I can, I can do what I do, uh, for the general public and kind of move it, move things forward that way. So mm -hmm. the hospitality industry has always been in this state of change. I know that we will definitely find our footing and adapt and, 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 and come back from this. I just, for the, for the short and medium term, I'm not sure what it's going to look like. I, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of menus already um, being very safe and a pared down version of what, what they were doing before, obviously for ease of execution and, and for, you know, the uncertainty that's everywhere. So yeah. I, it, it's, it's a really tough time right now. Um, I do think that ultimately, um, you know, the, the hospitality industry will, will come out of this, um, will come out of this. I just, I don't know when and I don't know how, to be perfectly it's, honest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you did touch on 2008, 2009 earlier when we were talking about sort of, you know, when, when you started uh, the dinner series and, you know, a lot of change did come out of that time. We saw trends sort of shift. We saw things become shift away from fine dining and a little bit more into casual, like high quality food, but mm -hmm. more of a casual approach. So it's entirely mm -hmm. possible that we will. But again, these are circumstances that seem a little bit more, I don't want to say insurmountable, but mm -hmm. I, I do want to say they're, they're, they're definitely challenging a little bit more of a question mark for sure in terms of how we proceed. But I mean, hopefully we'll see some strong positive change come out of it. I, I just want, I just want to have some positivity personally. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, in terms of, yeah, go ahead, Dad, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I, I'm sure that will happen. I mean, we've, we've said it, uh, we've said it a million times that restaurants, restaurants, restaurant owners, chefs, they're resilient by nature. They couldn't live and exist in this industry if they weren't. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm mm -hmm. sure we'll see, see some come out of that. 
Um, Franco, I wanted to ask you about the winemakers. I, I actually was just mm. reminded that um, we were all at the Restaurants Canada show um, mm. just a week and a half before the pandemic hit. And Franco, we, I, we were walking to the culinary stage where Michelle was hosting, and you were telling me about COVID and the winemakers discussions you were having with some of the winemakers and producers that you work with in Italy at that time, mm -hmm. because obviously mm -hmm. it was hitting them harder. Um, like that, that was um, the beginning of the very difficult times for them. Yeah. So in your conversations um, ongoing, obviously with, with all of your producers, um, are the winemakers shifting their, you know, what they're doing? Are, are they making any adjustments at this time? Or are they challenged with labor? Like what, mm. I haven't, haven't had this conversation with anyone. I'm very curious about how- A lot of the winemakers we work with uh, in the old world, France and Italy mm. specifically, um, are in a very similar situation as a lot of the hospitality industry. Obviously a lot of, you know, the sales have, have uh, not happened this year. Obviously a yeah. lot of their hospitality clients from around Europe and around the world are, you know, not ordering what they would have in past years. So um, a lot of them, a lot of the winemakers that we work with have been around a really long time, which is kind of interesting to get their take and their, um, their opinions and their view of what's happening right now. Sure. And a lot of the winemakers that have been around for many, many decades and sometimes hundreds of years, in the grand scheme of kind of the existence of their winery, this is a mere blip which is kind of a really interesting way to look at it. I mean, a lot of the winemakers that we work with don't really look at this year, next year, five years. They're looking at 10, 20, 50 years down the road. They're looking at which one of their children may be taking over the business, or they may be looking at, you know, after this winemaker, who's going to be taking over from this, this specific winemaker. So they have a much more macro view of, of, of the world and business, which is really interesting to see because in North America specifically, we tend to be really focused on the now and the, the immediate future and how things are going to play out. Whereas a lot of these winemakers, you know, some of the winemakers that we work with have been around for 600 years, 700 years, 300 years, mm -hmm. 200 years, where yeah. this doesn't really, you know, register to them. And, and the old, especially the older generation winemakers, are like, we, we'll be fine. Don't worry. Now, that's obviously a luxury that a lot of these older wine wineries and winemakers have is that a lot of their capital investments and a lot of their properties have been paid for decades, sometimes hundreds of years prior. So they're not really worried about um, the $50 million they may have just invested into mm -hmm. a new winery with they're in Hungary or if they were in California or something like that. So I think the stress is a little bit different depending on what winemaker you're talking to. Um, we, you know, we were able to do some really amazing things with some winemakers during COVID and, and speaking to them back in March, it was really interesting to see because everything was relatively still normal here. And everyone I was talking to in Italy specifically, um, you know, it was like this, this, this coming tsunami that we could see. And we're like, this is, and, and they would call, like I would had many conversations with the team from Rosholi in Rome, uh, right when things were really bad in, in, uh, in, in Italy. And, and I remember having this conversation specifically with the owner and he's like, listen, take this seriously because it is a disaster here. And he's like, it's coming towards you guys. There's no avoiding mm -hmm. this. Uh, and it was very surreal at the time. It was kind of like watching a disaster movie, but being in it. Um, where was I going with this? Right. Sorry. Um, we were able to kind of also work on some really fun projects during COVID that, that we're really proud of. One of our, 
one of our additions um, for the wine program, which was our July edition of the wine program. We started working on back in March with our uh, Barbaresco producer in Piedmont. And at the time, the winery was essentially closed. Uh, things were going very, very badly. And we had a conversation saying, hey, listen, would you do something special for us? I know you might have a little bit more time. Would you bottle us a, a special run of your Dolcetto into double magnum four liter bottles, sorry, three liter bottles? Um, and, um, and he said yes. And, and we got a really lovely email that we included with the whole write-up of the July winery, of the July, sorry, wine program edition, which was essentially what that order meant to the winery and the team at the winery. And I don't mean financially, that was, that was neither here nor there for them. That, that order of those three liter magnums was really what kept the winery team together in those really dark days in March um, in, in, in Piedmont. Um, it kept the team coming to the winery every day. Uh, it kept the team engaged. And I remember even when they were doing it, they're like, this, is, th this, this order is you know, uh, really what's holding us all together right now. So it was really nice and, and kind of nice mm. to hear. Yeah, that's great. It, it's interesting uh, that this has sort of brought us back to maybe thinking about the people that are behind everything that we consume and what we have in our daily lives, because I don't think we often think about the human side of things. So I love that. I agree. And I mean, we say it all the time in terms of both how I refer to or how we talk about the restaurant industry and how we talk about uh, both Charlie's Burgers dinners and even the CB wine program is essentially when you boil it down, when, it, when you boil it down, this whole what this industry is about and what the hospitality is, industry is about, at least to me, isn't about obviously the chefs are important, the food's important, the wine's important, service is important, but ultimately in my opinion, it comes down to people. The industry is about people. Um, you, you go to the restaurants that you love because of the relationship you Absolutely. often have with the people there. Um, we, you know, we, we work with wineries that we love because of the relationships that we have with the winemakers or the team there. Um, you know, people come to even CB dinners. Uh, we've had the same staff for the better part of a decade. They come because they also love to see us. It took us many years to figure that out because we always assume people wanted to see these crazy chefs and all that. And a lot of the guests start, over the years started telling us, they're like, we really like coming here. Uh, obviously the chefs and all that is great, but we just like to come see the team here and, and, and have fun with the whole team and have fun with the service team. And, and, and you guys are a lot of fun. So uh, that relationship at, at the beginning, we didn't realize uh, how important it was. And uh, I mean, I hope, I, I mean, one thing moving forward that I could foresee the hospitality industry, uh, I guess, doing better is that relationship side of, of that you have with your guests. I think a lot of it, um, um, some restaurants and some different concepts may have moved a little bit away from, from this in, in past years and, and focused on other elements, which are equally important. Um, but I think that really old school way of um, really having an engaged um, relationship with your guest is, is, is crucial to, I think, moving forward. Yeah. I want to talk, um, and I put you on the spot for mm -hmm. a second here, because you also did some fundraising uh, during, uh, during COVID. Can you share Thanks. that with us, which yes. was it's such an incredible initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So during COVID, um, in the, again, same, the dark days of, of COVID here, my, mm -hmm. uh, my partner Donato Corozza came to me and said, hey, we should really, uh, we should really think of, of doing something, uh, something to, to kind of help out and, 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 and do this. And then I thought about it and I thought, yeah, it's a, it's a really great idea. We should definitely do it. So uh, for, for many months, we uh, donated all the proceeds 
uh, all the profits of our of our case sales for home delivery uh, to uh, the Sunnybrook uh, COVID initiative. I think we donated over forty-three or forty over forty thousand uh, dollars in in total that, that we gave. We got a lot of our friends as well to kind of match donations. Um, and so we were able to kind of also inspire people to, you know, to, to, yeah. to look at us and say, Hey, listen, we're not, we're not, you know, super wealthy. We're not, you know, making profits hand over fist. We're just regular people. Um, but if, you know, if you want to join us, we'll take your, you know, matching donations. And a lot of our friends that, uh, uh, that, that, that saw that and, and clients as well were, were inspired and said, Hey, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll match the next five grand you guys do, or I'll match the next three grand you guys do or whatever it is. So it was really, really nice to see. And it was a really, it also got us, I mean, it got us through COVID in a way, I guess, mentally speaking, um, mm -hmm. it, we'd never worked as hard as we did, uh, than, than during COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. again, it's not like we made more money in fact, the opposite, but it really was about, it wasn't about that obviously. Um, but it really kind of kept us engaged and kept us really focusing on specific tasks that were, that were, um, that were beneficial for everyone, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like this, um, you know, we heard a lot of, we're all in this together. Um, but there was a, um, a sense of unity and there was a, um, a strength or empowerment that came out of, um, the reality of community, the, the, mm -hmm. the power and realization of that our community is fierce, you know, and we are all so fortunate uh, to live where we do and to know the people we do and to see how everybody came together and started to look at the things that really do matter and how we can how we can support. Like not everybody could do much, but if everybody, when everybody did a little, it, mm -hmm. it, it made great results. Like this is that $40,000 contribution is huge. And that is a, you know, is, is a, a symbol of how connected your community and supportive your community is. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I love that and story. It, it goes back to what I was saying as well before of, of relationships. I mean, our clients, mm -hmm. you can get great wines from numerous different places around the city right so um obviously we have terrific wines but in the end there are amazing wines all over um and so it is also part of what we want to share with our clients is that relationship the trust in us that we'll do the right thing or we'll you know we're we're, yes. we're here for the long run we're also part of the community that our clients live in and our guests mm -hmm. live in we're part of that same fabric we're not mm -hmm. um you know we're not a big corporation coming from some other country that they you know you have no idea who who is behind and and you don't know whether they'll be here for three years ten years or they'll be gone next week so you know it's um i saw it a lot as well as we went to cheese boutique during uh mm -hmm. during the whole covid thing is that you know, these are the people that are part of your community. So support yes. them. They're working yeah, hard. Yes. Yeah. And they yeah. did incredible work too. Can you tell us, we like to, we always like to kind of come to a couple of uh, questions for everyone. Is there anybody that you can pinpoint as being your greatest influence in this journey in the hospitality industry? It can oh be more than one person. Oh my. Other than, other than yeah, there, there would be many. I don't know if I, <laughs> Other than Jasmine, yeah, no, no, no. I, Jasmine was too, too, too scary to talk to. So, <laughs> I can't even imagine that. Um, no, but it's, it, it's. I think um, I don't know if I have anyone's in specific. 
And I, I didn't, okay. I, I haven't had a real, no, I'll, I'll talk about a few, but I haven't had a real upbringing or traditional upbringing in the hospitality industry where I worked under a certain person that showed me, you know, you have, you know, the specific things that, and philosophies that that, that, that person believed in and kind of shaped me in that way. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of what I was inspired by in this hospitality industry was um, from the peripheries of where I was working and kind of from the outside looking in a lot of the mm -hmm. time. Um, uh, I was really inspired by, I mean, people like Franco Prevedello in Toronto. Um, I never worked for Franco. Um, uh, I was, I was too young at the time, but what, what Franco built in terms of, um, a really elevated dining experience in Toronto in the seventies, mm -hmm. eighties and nineties was kind of that, that, that starting point where a lot of chefs got, you know, cut their teeth essentially. A lot of the inspiration I've seen that kind of resonates a lot with me is 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 restaurateurs and chefs and and people in the hospitality industry that have dedicated uh, their careers to building something with longevity, building something that will be there after they're gone, uh, or or building something to kind of um, to keep moving forward even afterwards. Uh, mm. You could see restaurants like St. John in London uh, being there well after Fergus Henderson uh, retires and is no longer kind of working. Um, so those are those are really kind of institutions. And a lot of them are based on kind of that old world mentality of building for the future where, mm. um, you know, I, they're not interested in building a restaurant or, or some sort of hospitality business for for three years or five years. They're looking at it as, you know, this is this is hopefully something that the next generations will take over and move forward for us, uh, which is also a very similar philosophy of uh, in the wine industry that most of the family wineries um, that, that we've worked with and most family wineries around the world, really their only mission is to safeguard and to kind of um, uh, to look after the property until the next generation takes it over and to leave it uh, to that next generation in as good shape or better as they got it. Uh, mm -hmm. So really, they're just kind of looking after it for a while. And that's, a, I mean, in my opinion, that's a really great philosophy to have because it ensures that you do uh, the right things and make the right decisions uh, that'll benefit everyone long term. I love that. Um, we have a, a fun question that we like to ask everybody as well. Um, what is your go-to comfort food? What do you like to enjoy on your day off? Mm. Um, in the summer, like right, yeah. Or after you finish a really big <laughs> CB dinner production <laughs> and you put that chef on the plane <laughs> and you feel like you want to die. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, okay, so there's two. Right now, what brings me the greatest joy at this time of year specifically, um, and then the last couple of months, but um, we have a, a big vegetable garden at home here in Toronto. Um, and really what kind of brings me a lot of joy if I've had a, you know, if I've had a shitty day or even if I've had a good day, whatever it is, um, is spending some time in the garden and actually picking some items. It, what's great about that is, is you walk into a garden, it's having, it's like having a produce section at home. Uh, and it's also like having the freshest produce section you could hope for at home. Um, so a lot of the time, I don't know what I'm going to make, but you realize that you're like, oh, I've got some we've got some tomatoes that are ripe. We've got some eggplant that are ripe. We have peppers that are ripe. You have these great lettuces that are ripe and you kind of figure out what you're going to make on the fly. Um, so right now, a lot of the comfort comes from not so much the, um, not so much the actual dishes I'm putting together, but the process of getting there um, in terms of, of those fresh veg. Um, otherwise espresso, that's what makes me happy. <laughs> 
And I would like to, was it yesterday? Oh, yeah. uh, Yes, powered by, definitely. Was it yesterday or the day before on Instagram? You were doing this, like, epic fried chicken Oh yeah. Showdown. I just want to ask about this because like you like of course, Franco, you said, Oh my vegetable garden and all this kind of stuff. Like yeah, 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 I yeah. knew you weren't gonna say, Yeah, I like beeline it to the drive-thru at McDonald's and whatever. Yeah. However, you did have this epic fried chicken showdown that you Yeah, so funny enough, I have touch uh, on this for a second. All summer, actually since COVID um and now it didn't end, but like since it's been warm since we were able to go back outside in the mm-hmm. early parts of the summer uh, a group of friends get together every week and we play pétanque in the park uh, which is basically French bocce so they're like okay. smaller smaller metal balls uh, it's the French version of bocce essentially it's a little bit more act it's a little bit higher paced than bocce uh, I probably have another 20 years till I really need to play bocce um, but basically so it's become again it's become kind of this thing in the park where everyone really looks forward to it so that's uh I think it's four couples so um funny enough the guys kind of end up playing bocce and then the women kind of end up drinking wine and chatting it's really fun but we all have we all have dinner together first in the park and then we kind of all do our own thing um and it it, over the weeks it's kind of evolved where like we have proper glassware and we did caviar one month and then and so for some reason um Last week, one of one of the one of the people that, that we play with is is wanted to try this. I guess Popeyes launched this new sandwich, um, and so <laughs> he's like, "Why don't we just order a whole bunch of chicken sandwiches?" I'm like, "That's a great idea." So um, that's really how it came about. And uh, yeah, we had uh, fried chicken sandwiches from uh, from from Alouette, from from Parketta and Co, and from Popeyes. Um, and you'd be surprised the dirty, dirty Popeyes is a pretty oh, tasty thing. Wow! <laughs> See, this is. This is the information I was hoping to get out of you, Franco. This is really... (laughs) Uh, To be honest, it is only the second time I've ever had Popeyes. I'm not surprised. I was was like, damn, this is pretty good. Yeah. Um, They do one uh, thing and they do it well. They do. They do. So anyway. What did you pair your fried chicken (laughs) buffet with? Oh, we actually had an orange wine from, uh, from Georgia. I love it. Which is, which was, yeah, it was a good pairing. It was a fun pairing. We did that. And then we had a couple bottles of rosé after that. Actually, no, we had a few pairings going, actually. So yeah. <laughs> there's an orange wine from Georgia. There was a, uh, a Blanc de Blanc champagne. And there was a rosé as well floating around. Um, and uh, I think I may have had a Coors Light in between there somewhere. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, this sounds, this sounds like an ideal day. Franco, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. This has thank been a you. lot of fun. Michelle, Jasmine, it's always fun. It's nice to see your faces. And thank you thank so much you. for, uh, thank you for this. It was fun. Thank yeah. you. We'll chat Bye. soon. Bye. Bye, guys. See you. Well, that's it for another episode of Breaking Bread. We'll be back soon with more stories of the people behind what we eat, drink, and enjoy. Have a show idea or want to connect with us? You can reach us at breakingbreadtalkingfood at gmail.com. See you soon.